Welcome to Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio. Big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. I'm your aptly named host of your favorite hebdomadal podcast. Oh, I'm glad you're with me. I'd suffer the embarrassment of hydrogenitis superativa if you rubbed me the wrong way with the idea that you missed this week's show. Bitcoin and the Future of Fundraising. That's the new book by Ann Connolly and Jason Shim. They share the potential in cryptocurrency donations and explain simply how to get started. Private keys, public keys, wallets and exchanges. It's time to learn what's inevitably in your nonprofit's future. On Tony's Take Two, Veterans Day. We're sponsored by Turn Two Communications. PR and content for nonprofits. Your story is their mission. Turn-2.co. Here is Bitcoin and the future of fundraising. It's my pleasure to welcome co-authors to Nonprofit Radio. Ann Connolly is faculty at Singularity University. She's worked at Doctors Without Borders and been a member of their board. As director of fundraising at Dignitas International, she set up one of the world's first Bitcoin donation programs. Anne is certified in strategic disruption from Harvard Business School, which sounds like a degree in anarchy. Maybe we'll talk a little about what what that's about. Uh, She was named one of Canadian Broadcasting Corporation's 12 Young Leaders in Changing Canada and one of the 50 Most Inspirational Women in Technology in Canada. She's at Ann underscore Connolly. And welcoming back Jason Shim. He's Director of Digital Strategy and Transformation at Pathways to Education Canada. His experience spans the nonprofit and academic sectors, helping organizations stay ahead of the technology curve. In 2013, he led Pathways to become the first charity to issue tax receipts for Bitcoin donations. He's an editor at Ledger a peer-reviewed scholarly journal at the University of Pittsburgh, Pitt, publishing original research on cryptocurrency and blockchain technology. Jason is on the board of N10, where Amy Sample Ward, our listeners know her, is a CEO. And Jason is at Jason Shim. Together, they wrote the book, Bitcoin and the Future of Fundraising, a Beginner's Guide to crypto, Cryptocurrency Donations. And welcome to Nonprofit Radio. Jason, welcome back. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having us. Oh, it's a pleasure. Pleasure to have both of you. Uh, and let's start with you. The, uh, the cryptocurrency is like a, a new technology, like uh, at one time uh, the telephone and talking movies, right? Talkies and the TV and internet and cell phones, uh, these technologies all had their their naysayers and those who thought it was just a fad. You know, talking movies those will never last. <laughs> so, what do we what do we say to folks who are naysayers, uh, thinking that uh, cryptocurrency maybe is just a fad or is too dangerous? How do we allay those concerns about this new technology? It's very reasonable for people to be nervous about new technology. I mean, I can remember my parents talking about the internet back in, you know, the early to late 90s and saying, 
you know, anyone will be able to look up the recipe for a bomb. Like we need to stop this. This is dangerous. And, you know, that's true. In today's world, anyone probably could look up the recipe for a bomb, but no one would ever consider saying we should stop the internet. It's a bad thing for society. Um, and I think that's where we're at with cryptocurrencies is people are still in that phase where they're learning about maybe some of the scarier elements uh, and they haven't quite gotten to realizing just how powerful and incredible this technology is both for you know themselves but also for society and people around the world who might not have access to the same you know financial services that some of us do yeah that's a very interesting point uh, let's let, say a little more about how this can be liberalizing for a lot of folks a lot of parts of the world where banking infrastructure is not something they take for com or, or financial infrastructure broader than just banking is not is not something that they take for granted the way those of us in the in the west do yeah i think there's two sides to that really is is for many of us in north america you know we have easy access to banking services and um, but even in the States, more than 25% of people are unbanked. They don't have access to that. And when you look around the world, those rates are even worse. And so many people just operate in a cash economy. It means they're locked out of any sort of loan systems or being able to better themselves um, through more formal financial services. Uh, and then there's a whole set of countries where people can't even trust their national currencies. So if you look at Places like Argentina, Iraq, Venezuela, or sorry, Iran, um, where inflation is astronomical. Even right now in Canada, inflation is more than four and a half percent. But if you look at Venezuela in you know 2018, their inflation rate was hundreds of millions of it was, percent, yeah, yeah, but, not right, more. Right, hundreds of millions or billions of percent. Yeah. Yeah, it was wild, and so. You know, if you can imagine your life savings disappearing overnight simply because the government is printing too much money or isn't a good custodian of the national financial system, that's the reality for a lot of people. And so I think when I think about Bitcoin, more than anything, it's not its goal is not to replace national currencies. Its goal is to provide people with choice so that, you know, if they're really happy with the, the currency their government is providing, they can certainly use that. But if they don't have access to it, they don't have access to banks or they don't trust their government to do a good job of managing their money, they have another option. And that's what for me is so exciting is it's this global permissionless system where anybody can take part um, and use it to uh, fundamentally change their lives. So, Jason, is it is it as simple as just needing an internet connection for anyone in the world to to participate in in cryptocurrencies yeah i mean that that's pretty much the foundational building block that you know if you have access to an internet connection and you know can download you know the the um, you know, there's a few different approaches of, of accepting, you know, cryptocurrency, but uh, yeah, it starts with the internet connection in terms of, you know, getting, getting access to that, that wider network for sure. Okay. Um, now the, uh, I, I did a quick search of just comparing uh, the U S and Canada and adoption rates are much higher in, uh, in Canada than, than in the U S I, I found like 13% of Americans have bought or traded cryptocurrency, but it's, it's like 30% of, Canadians, so much much wider adoption for our, well, for your country, for our neighbors here, for me, for our neighbors in the north, for 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 your country, for the two of you. Any any explanation to why it might be thirty percent in Canada versus just thirteen in the U.S.? 
I, I think I what found might it. be. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Jason. Sorry, go ahead, Anne. You go ahead. <laughs> okay, um, I'll pick. Uh, I'll okay. pick, Anne. You go ahead. I think what's even more exciting, really, than comparing the United States and Canada is looking where it's growing globally. You know, some of the greatest adoption rates are in places like uh, Nigeria or Southeast Asia. Um, And that's really demonstrative of, you know, when you have locations that maybe aren't providing the financial services that we have in North America, the rates are exploding. Um, From a Canadian perspective, I know people are are really keen to explore new technologies. And uh, we also have a a massive immigrant population that wants to send money back home. Um, So trying to find mechanisms that enable them to do that without paying, you know, fees of eight to 12 percent through Western Union. Bitcoin is a really great option for a lot of those people. Mm-hmm. All right, uh, now, Anne, I, I was I chose you, but uh, you you didn't answer you didn't answer the question, so I'm going to try Jason. Uh, although it was <laughs> anarchist, yeah, I, uh, that it's that, that degree in anarchy. I knew it. Um, <laughs> what 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 is, what is Harvard called? Oh, strategic disruption. All right, the, the anarchy degree uh, or certification. So, um, well, uh, Jason, uh, any any. Do you have any insight into why so much more widely adopted in Canada than the U.S.? Not that what Ann said was not valuable. I, I appreciate what's happening in Niger, et cetera. Uh, but I just wanted to bring it. Uh, I did want to try to bring it back to, to, the, to North America here. Yeah. In, in terms of adoption rates, like what I found over the years is that, you know, when, when tech companies uh, in the past have been looking for like pilot uh, areas that I, I know that Canada has stood out as being, you know, the place where, you know, um, uh, initial kind of rollouts or, or pilots have, have happened. So, you know, when um, I know that when, uh, you know, folks are testing out like new apps, you know, for their organizations, if it's a multinational organization, it'll tend, like what I've observed is that it has tended to be uh, tested out in, in Canada first. And I, I, I imagine, you know, that may reflect, you know, that it's a fairly, you know, uh, tech savvy connected, you know, uh, uh, population, but also uh, there were some hotspots uh, for cryptocurrency, you know, in, in its early days. I mean, uh, Ethereum was born out of Toronto. Um, Vitalik Buterin is, uh, you know, Canadian, the, the founder of, of Ethereum. And uh, there, there are uh, several clusters in, in Canada that, um, you know, a lot of the initial uh, developments uh, in coding around, you know, Bitcoin and uh, Ethereum and, and subsequent projects uh, I think really grew out of that. So I, I think what we're seeing in terms of the increased adoption rates is an extension of that where, uh, you know, not unlike, you know, early Silicon Valley, where, you know, a lot of you know tech development happened there that, you know, for I think the early 2010s, um, uh, Toronto really served as kind of that that initial hub and the, those communities that really got engaged. So uh, no surprise that, you know, subsequent, uh, you know, uh, companies emerged and, um, you know, adoption, uh, you know, may have been a bit quicker here. Um, but, you know, mm-hmm. I, I think that we are seeing that definite uh, dispersion where there, there are multiple, uh, you know, crypto hubs that have emerged, you know, in the last 10 years, uh, for sure. Um, but um, yeah, I, I mean, Canada is also a wide place. I mean, you know, being able to <laughs> send, uh, send payments um, easily and, and for, by practical example, and this isn't particular to Canada, you know, specifically, but, you know, when, when working in international contexts, you know, hearing from, you know, developer contacts in, a, in, in the local community that when you're considering paying developers overseas and all the, the options that are available, like Bitcoin is emerging as, you know, um, when, uh, when, when speaking to folks about, you know, how they're managing payments, you know, Bitcoin is often an easier way to pay um, developers in other parts of the world than it is going through traditional uh, payment mechanisms, Um because of the, the lessened administration and uh, at times even just the availability uh, where 
you know, trying to pay someone where banking systems um, are limited, uh, you know, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, so I, I think all these things combined have contributed to um, higher, um, you know, Canadian adoption, as uh, you pointed out. Yeah, interesting. All right, thank you. Um, now, so you mentioned uh, Ethereum or, or Ether uh, uh, being the, the the second most popular cryptocurrency behind Bitcoin. Um, Jason, was was, was Bitcoin uh, originated in in the states, or was that was that also in Canada? That yeah, oh, no, in terms oh, oh, of somewhere sorry, else. Well, it was, no, I'm sorry, it was another country, wasn't it? Uh, Bitcoin. I location wise, I, I think um, it, it'd be best described as um, kind of Bitcoin emerged um, online. That it, it, you know, to this day, the it, the uh, you know the founder uh, founder or founders of Bitcoin, um, you know, or uh, so in terms of like a, a specific location where it was created, uh, I'd say you know Bitcoin would, would have been online, and then you know uh, Ethereum, uh, many of the major players um, uh, who are known were, were based out of Toronto. Right. Okay. Okay. That's right. You you say in the book that the the founders of Bitcoin are still unknown to us, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. Um, And uh, with some trepidation, I'll go back to you. Um, So since I uh, made fun of this, tell me about what a a certificate in strategic disruption is. What is that? I think the the key element about it is it helps you develop a mindset about how to think about moving forward with your organization or your company where you try to essentially disrupt yourself. And that's why companies like Apple were so successful is, you know, they had a product, they had a product that worked. They could have just, you know, kept producing that same product for many years until some other company came by and beat them out and the company would go under. But instead of waiting for someone else to come out with a better product, they actually said, hey, we're going to actually cannibalize our own offering. We're going to make a better product. So, you know, we're not going to just make uh, the iPod. We're now going to make the iPhone um, and our customers are going to buy that instead. And so they were constantly creating new and imaginative things and changing the lives of their customers. And so strategic disruption is really that. And, and you can apply the same type of mentality in the nonprofit sector and say, listen, you know, we've got a pretty good fundraising program. We've got major gifts that come in. We've got direct mail that goes out and um, we could sit here for 20 more years and raise money this way, but the nonprofits that are going to do the best in the long run are the ones that really look at their program and say, hey, let's let's actually shake up the way that we're doing things. Let's try some really new and innovative stuff. Some of it will fail. Some of it will succeed spectacularly. And that's actually going to help us future-proof the organization um, and help us uh, be you know, essentially a stronger, longer-lasting organization moving forward. It's time for a break. Turn to communications. Communications, it's in their name. So they don't only do the public relations and the media work that I've talked a lot about. Communications is so much more vast than that. So think about documents, documents you use to communicate, case studies, your annual report, white papers, Turn2 can create these documents for you. They've got a, a, a journalism background, a writing background. They know how to understand your, your tone, your core messages, and how to bring those out in your written documents. So if you've got this content that needs to be created and it's not getting done, you need help, think about Turn2. Because your story 
is their mission. They're at turn-to.co. Now back to Bitcoin and the future of fundraising. Let, let's uh, and let's let's bring it back to uh, cryptocurrency and North America. G- give us uh, give folks some motivation uh, in terms of raw numbers and potential growth, uh, so we can help uh, allay fears. Because you know, aside from it being a new technology, you know, lots of folks get the uh, pay me twenty five hundred dollars in the U.S. in Bitcoin, or else I'll release these bad things about you on the internet, you know, and I'll share your contacts with, with their, you know, et cetera. So there's some that contributes to some of the fears, these, uh, these, um, you know, email scams. So help, uh, help allay some fear with some hard numbers about where crypto is and where Bitcoin is maybe specifically and about the future. Yeah, I think the the best numbers I can help relay are really numbers around donations that have already happened. And so, you know, last year, Vitalik Buterin, who was the founder of Ethereum, he gave a billion dollars to COVID relief, a billion with a B. So tell me about any other billion dollar donations that you heard about last year, you know, in any country around the world. And so, and that's just, that's, you know, it's not the only one. We had the Pineapple Fund gave away $55 million worth of cryptocurrency. There have been many other examples of um, very generous donors. Doctors Without Borders Australia just got a $35 million gift uh, last week. Um, So the the numbers that I really want to convey are that, you know, there's a, a community of crypto donors that are, are waiting to make these gifts that have just enormous amounts of money and a real passion for changing the world. That's why they got into crypto because they want to make a difference. And so now they've got all this money and they're trying to find organizations that they can actually give this money to. And right now that's, that's a challenge. Like right now there's some incredible organizations accepting, but in order to find charities that are accepting crypto, most donors will Google, they say, which charities accept cryptocurrency? And then they pick one off the list. And so there's this amazing opportunity for charities that are out there and nonprofits to actually uh, connect with this donor group that's really being ignored um, by most of the community and really make deep relationships with them because they're very different from traditional donor groups, how they like to give, what interests them, that type of thing. Uh, but the potential for their giving is just astronomical and the potential to create change together um, is what really gets me excited about cryptocurrencies in the space. Yeah, at, at the end of every chapter, you have a little uh, call-out box about uh, a, a donation, a, a, a big number donation that was made uh, in cryptocurrency. Um, but yet the penetration rate, I, I think in the States, there's only like 3 or 4% of charities only are accepting uh, cryptocurrency donations. Uh, and some of the big ones that you name are United Way, uh, Red Cross. Do you want to... Sh- do you want to shout out a couple in uh, in Canada that are accepting? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Pathways to Education, of course, which is Jason's organization, was one of the first. War Child um, has been accepting for a long time. Um, we have organizations like the Mississauga Food Bank, which is a you know a major site. PETA, United Way up north, as well as accepting. So it's not the case that there aren't you know, well-recognized organizations with good brands and and that are well-trusted. There are many names. 
Um, I think what's sort of holding some organizations back is just is education. You know, we're at we're at the stage where Bitcoin can be a little bit scary. Um, people don't necessarily feel comfortable. They're not sure whether it's going to be worth it. Um, and and that's really just a, a small hump to get over. You know, you can watch a lot of great videos online to learn about it. You can, you know, get uh, the book that Jason and I put together, which is specifically written for fundraisers who don't know anything about crypto and want to get started. Um, but more than anything, the best way to kind of get excited and start learning about cryptocurrencies and, is just to buy some. And you don't have to go out and buy, you know, uh, $10,000 worth or anything. Just buy a dollar's worth of Bitcoin. Um, think of it as, you know, investing an evening of your time and learning something new and fun. Um, and that'll really help you understand you know, how it works, what it's like, what you could do with it. Um, and uh, it's, it's a great way to get your foot in the door. Yeah. And Jason, you, uh, in the book, you two recommend that as uh, also establishing credibility with the, the crypto donor community, yeah. buying, some, buying some on your own, even before your organization has a, has a mechanism, you know, has set it up so that you, you, you're, not, you're not just testing your, your own organization's uh, infrastructure for accepting these gifts. We'll get to that. But just buying and buying some on your own you, sounds like gives credibility to you, gives you credibility among the, the donor community. For sure. And I think that you know, many who are involved in the, the cryptocurrency community, you know, it, 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 I think it goes to really how do you build that, that deeper relationship and have a conversation with folks that it's, it's not just, you know, solely talking about, you know, the, the don- you know, yes, there's a donation part, but it's also, you know, I, I, I think, you know, uh, being able to speak knowledgeably about it um, and, you know, as uh, as people are in, involved in it and interested, you know, it, it um, showing up in the communities as well. And, and I mean, that that that's another kind of tactic that, you know, we, we do mention, you know, in, in the book and, you know, have seen uh, used to, to good effect that, you know, if if you're going to engage, you know, um, communities of donors that are very interested in, you know, something that they have self-identified that, you know, but before folks get into it, you know, folks typically you know, do a lot of research and, um, and, you know, form, you know, uh, in-person communities or online communities around it and Mm. just showing up in those spaces and being like, yeah, you know, I'm often what I found over the years is that, you know, when participating in, you know, those cryptocurrency spaces and everyone's doing introductions, it, it was a few years before I was, you know, for a long time, you know, was the only charity in, in the space. And recently it's like, hi, you know, I work for a charity. Like, oh, what brings you here? And immediately there's a way to connect uh, and over that and folks get really interested. And it was a few years before a second charity arrived. And, you know, that was an indication to me that, you know, that uh, this was growing in awareness and, and such. But, you know, I, I think that uh, having that background of even having, you know, purchased a small amount, uh, you know, gives that gives that experience and credibility around you know, it's not just, you know, saying, hey, you know, uh, can you make a donation? Okay, thanks, bye. It's, you know, how do you cultivate that longer term relationship where we're part of something bigger here? Like there, there's um, cryptocurrency, you know, emerging as um, uh, as a new asset class, as a way to uh, facilitate, you know, uh, transactions that, you know, uh, bigger, uh, bigger possibilities in, in terms of, you know, what we're seeing with, you um, uh, what the ways that people are transacting, interacting, you know, uh, NFTs around the corner. We, uh, you know, haven't touched on that yet, but it's, uh, it, it, it gives more surface area for, to connect with people on. And, you know, I, I think that, um, you know, that's, 
when building a relationship, you know, having having more of those commonalities uh, is is also important. So Anne mentioned the um, the fact that a lot of a lot of crypto donors now are just googling, you know, where can I make a crypto donation? But we wouldn't expect that to continue as the penetration rate becomes higher among charities. I mean, so it is going to be building relationships and and eventually it'll become just another way of making a, a, a gift from folks that know you, you know, like, like, like writing a check or transferring stock. Eventually there'll be, the world will be just, you know, it, it won't be, where do I make a donation by through crypto? It's no sure. different really than, you know, when charities started adopting online donation platforms and, and, you know, website donation forms, in the early days, there weren't that many that had them and people wanted to use their credit card to donate online would have to figure out which charities made that uh, a possibility. But today, no charity would ever think of not having an yeah. online form. And so really, it's just it's just a timing thing. We're just still in the early days and very exciting days. And um, because of that, there's an incredible opportunity for the organizations that do get on on board early. And. And, and to that point, like I, I think that you know when when we think about you know early days when there were uh, opportunities to donate online, that you know I think there was a period in which organizations would have you know um, competed on you know features so that even just having the ability to accept credit cards online would have set you you know uh, apart. Mm-hmm. And you know as as more people you know adopt you know online credit card payments, then you have to um, you know compete on on a different kind of um, uh, on like service provision. So, you know, the, the ease for which someone can make it. And, you know, I think we're seeing that similar transition where, you know, right now it's still at that phase where it's like, okay, you know, do, does someone accept it? Yes or no. And then, you know, as that, um, as that number increases, then it's going to be a different proposition where it's like, all right, now who, who does it with the most ease or who, who provides that additional added experience that is, you know, absolutely fantastic. Um, and, you know, as we look into, you know, how, um, how folks are engaging, like, you know, it, 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 is there a future in which, you know, folks, you know, have some sort of representation on, on, you know, the blockchain that's like, you know, this certifies that, you know, you have donated to this organization or, you know, you, you can unlock, you know, different online, you know, possibilities, you know, through your donation that's embedded on the blockchain or, or opportunities like that. So, you know, I think that that's kind of a possible future that, you know, things can move in that direction as well. Jason, let's make sure everybody understands the blockchain. It, it took me, a good amount of reading and many guests before you, or well, give myself a break, a few guests before you, maybe not many, uh, to understand what blockchain is. But it's really, it's really something very simple. Once I once once I understood it, it was simple. Uh, but it took a little. <laughs> I'm trainable. I guess I'm trainable. That that that's the good news. But uh, you know, so every every cryptocurrency is on a blockchain, and you, the book is a very good primer uh, about. Uh, all the about the whole world of cryptocurrency, not just about blockchain. But I, I found your book to be a, a good primer. Use good analogies. I mean, simple analogies that are easy to understand. So, what, let, let's make sure everybody understands what uh, a blockchain is and and why each cryptocurrency has its own blockchain. Can you uh, explain that, Jason? Since you just mentioned blockchain. Yeah, yeah. So, so when, when making a transaction, uh, you know, there there is a. a um... A record that that is kept of it, and traditionally, you know, there may be like you know one one record that is kept. But w- what's different about a blockchain is that as a transaction happens on the network, um, a rec- uh, everyone who is participating in the network keeps a record 
of um of all the transactions that are happening so you know the three of us right now that um you know uh tony jason and that you know if i were to uh, you know transfer um you know five dollars uh you know worth of uh you know bitcoin over to Anne, that the record that is kept you know imagine all three of us scribbling that because we we witnessed that happening and so you know it's um between you know uh someone could claim it's like, oh, you didn't actually give Anne, you know, uh, $5, you gave her three and be like, no, no, wait a minute. Like you, you had seen that transaction, you had written it down. And so that is kind of a really basic um, explanation of, you know, what, um, how the blockchain operates, is, except that instead of three people, imagine that with 30,000 people or more, like, you know, just every single person who's participating in the network keeps their own, you know, extremely detailed ledger of, you know, everything that is happening uh, within the, the network. And that that's, you know, in part what keeps it secure that, you know, instead of trusting, you know, one single party that, you know, could, uh, you know, alter, you know, those those records, it's like you, you have the collective that, you know, everyone sees everything that's happening simultaneously um, in, uh, in electronic uh, format. And, and you two explain in the book why that's enormously secure. Uh, secure from from hacking, from financial fraud and and theft, uh, secure from mistakes. So you know, you just, listeners, you got to get the book to, under, to get to go into the depth of the security of a, of a blockchain. Um, all right, so let let let's start getting into the the, the nitty gritty of of how to. And can you start us off with? I, I think it's important to explain what the keys are: the private key and a public key. And then we're going to get into how folks get their own are going to buy and, and maybe sell their own cryptocurrency. But could you start us off with the keys, Anne? Yeah, no problem. So if you think about your wallet um, that you have in your purse or your back pocket and um, you store your cash in there, Bitcoin uses something called a wallet as well. Um, and it's where you store your Bitcoin, but it's digital. Now, if you think about your house, every house has a public address. So 123 Any Street. And you can give that address to anybody in the world. They can send you a letter. They can you know, show up and look in the windows, but they can't actually open the door to your house and take any of your stuff. And so your Bitcoin wallet also has a public address. And what you can do with that public address is give it to anyone that you know wants to send you money and they can send you money and it gets deposited into your wallet. But your wallet also has something called a private key. And it's kind of like the key to the front door of your house. And so if you give that key to anybody, um, they can open the front door of your house. They can come in and take all your furniture and all your electronics. And whether they're legally allowed to or not, they can do it. And the same sort of thing applies to your wallet's private key. If you give them that private key, anybody can then open up your wallet, take your Bitcoin, and there's really no recourse. And so... um, Essentially, what that means is you want to always keep your private key safe, always keep your private key backed up in a number of secure locations. Um, And what's really nice about that is if you ever have any issues with your wallet, like let's say you lose your phone or, you know, something happens where the company making the wallet goes under and you're suddenly like, where's my money? As long as you have your private key, you will always have access to your money. And so that's what's really amazing about it versus, say, if your bank went under, you might not have access to your money ever again. If PayPal froze your account, you wouldn't be able to access your money. But with Bitcoin, as long as you have your private key, you always have access to your money. Okay. And again, as I said, the the book, such simple analogies that, that the public key is like your address and the private key is like your house key. Uh, very, very, uh, very comprehensible. 
It's time for Tony's Take Two. Veterans Day was last week, and I was remiss in my show planning for last week's show, so I don't want to let it go unmentioned. I'm grateful. I'm thankful. I thank the many millions of people who have served our country in the military, uh, and also my gratitude to families who have lost folks because of their military service. Families that made that sacrifice and the military members themselves that made those sacrifices, I'm thankful to, to those people as well. And if, if there's someone in your family who died in the military, died supporting and defending our nation, I thank you. I had my own service. I was in the Air Force. Uh, military service is, is, is a calling. And I, I admire those who continue to answer that call, that call to, to service, uh, duty to our country. Thank you. Thank you. That is Tony's take two. Veterans Day. We've got buku buttloads more time for Bitcoin and the future of fundraising. And you, you want to continue? Uh, I, it seems to me like the next step is, or the way you lay it out is the next step is, is getting a wallet. Yeah, so there's lots of different ways to get a wallet. Um, there's most, the most easiest way is just download a mobile wallet on your phone. Um, there's ones on the web as well, and there's a number of different companies out there. Now, um, um, and and just ex- explain what the wallet is for. Oh yeah, the wallet is just for storing your cryptocurrency. That's it. So it's kind of like the wallet you've got in your purse or in your back pocket. Um, it's just where you keep your crypto, and it enables you to send it to other people. So if you have like Venmo or something like that, it feels a bit like Venmo. Um, you just open it up, and you can send your Bitcoin to someone else. Uh, the difference is there's just no centralized company behind it the way there is with Venmo or with PayPal. Um, so, you know, there's a, a, yeah, a number of different wallet companies out there. Some of them will enable you to hold on to your private key. Like uh, blockchain.com is one example of a wallet that I use that enables you to hold on to your private key. Um, many of you probably heard of Coinbase. Coinbase is a little bit different because they actually hold on to your private key. So, it's probably less secure from that perspective because it's always good to have your key. But if you're afraid of losing your key, Coinbase is probably a good option for you. Um, so once you picked a wallet, you download it onto your, your phone um, and then you can use an exchange to actually buy cryptocurrency. So typically you would either connect your bank account or use a credit card um, and just trade some of your USD or your Canadian dollars for us Northern folks. And um they'll give you some Bitcoin in return. Kind of the same way, like if you were going on vacation to Mexico, you would take your USD to an exchange booth at the airport and um, they would just trade you some USD for Mexican pesos. Here, you're going to get USD and get some Bitcoin back. So, And if it's a if it's a wallet like Coinbase, where you said they hold your private key, you, you, you can't also hold your private key? I mean, like they can't have it and you have it? No, because at the end of the day, it's it's like your house key. You know, if two people have a copy of the house key and all of a sudden the contents of the house are gone, who stole them? You don't know. 
you uh. fundamentally need to have you know one person that that's responsible um, for the contents of the wallet. And that's either going to be you as an individual or the company will take on that responsibility for you, which has its pros and cons. Um, and so, yeah, for a lot of people, that's, that's a huge plus having someone else manage that responsibility for um, others in the crypto space. It's really important for them to manage and own their own money. Uh, can you name any other uh, of the more popular wallets? You mentioned Bitcoin.com, Coinbase. Coinbase, Bread Wallet, um, there's Electrum, there's Jason. What other ones can you throw in there? I, th- I think that, that that covered off all the uh, the big ones. The, um, there's Metal uh, Pay, Exodus. Yeah, there's a, there's a number, a number of different options out there for folks to choose from these days, which is great. Okay. And it's just a matter of Googling, right? What what are the top 10 wallets or what's a wallet for my, is it, is it country specific? Do you need a, a wallet that works in your country, Jason? No, it's a, uh, it, it's pretty um, uh, cross border. So, you know, so, so long as it, um, you, you can download it from uh, your, your respective app store and, and it works, uh, you know, just, uh, you know, making sure that you're finding a, a reputable wallet that, you know, has solid, re- you know, reviews and, um, but uh no, there, it's uh, no, no country specificity uh, aside from, you know, uh, uh, if, if it is attached to a, a certain you know, provider or company that accepts a certain currency. So I, I know that there are some wallets um, on the international side that are uh, particular for um, uh, deposits that, you know, if, uh, if you want to deposit in a certain currency, then that may be the only kind of uh, particular about it. But um, mm-hmm. otherwise, no, it, it's pretty, uh, uh, pretty universal. Okay. You, you make the security point in the book about not keeping your private key on your phone, but you, you both have mentioned the phone and, and using a phone app, but you're supposed to just write your private key down and keep it somewhere secure, like a, like a, like a safe deposit box or something. Yeah. Safe deposit box is a great spot, uh, safe in your house, somewhere where you're keeping really important documents. The way to think about it is, you know, that key will fundamentally open access to all the money in your wallet. So if you had $500 in cash, where would you store that? Would you store it in your desk drawer? Would you store it in your bedside table? Probably not. You'd probably store it somewhere a little more secure. And so based on how much money you have in your wallet, that's sort of where you want to think about storing your private key. If it's 20 bucks, yeah, maybe put it in your desk. If it's $100,000, you definitely don't want to leave that lying around. Um, and Jason, can you say a little more about exchanges? Yeah. So, so in terms of uh, exchanges, um, you know, we talked earlier about you know wallets. Exchanges are, are where the uh, many of the transactions around the world uh, you know take place, and really that it functions you know similar to you know regular kind of currency exchange or a stock market exchange where you know there it establishes a market where there you know there's buyers and sellers, and so you know. Um, uh, as Anne mentioned earlier, you know, if you're looking to exchange something like U.S. dollars for, you know, Bitcoin, that, um, you know, you're, you're usually going to be working with an exchange in order to um, uh, to do that. And on, on exchanges, you know, depending on uh, on the exchange, you know, they they may list a whole bunch of um, different currencies, cryptocurrencies, uh, you know. Um, uh, so, you know, they may list in U.S. dollars, you know, Canadian dollars, you know, Bitcoin, Ethereum, you know, if, if folks are looking at uh, things like, you know, Dogecoin or, um, uh, and it's, it's going quite, uh, quite extensive. I mean, you know, some of the larger ones are definitely, you know, listing um, uh, many, many different uh, cryptocurrencies. 
Um, but, uh, you know, if uh, those who are looking for like, you know, the the major ones that, you know, have emerged, you know, uh, primarily, you know, Bitcoin, Ethereum, you know, th- those are pretty standard almost across all exchanges uh, these days. And uh, they, 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 the, the, the exchanges are really the, the mechanisms for which, um, you know, as it relates back to, to nonprofits that, uh, you know, after someone does make a donation of, um, of cryptocurrency, um, you know, having that exchange, you know, connection or, um, and some providers, you know, have that baked into their, uh, their services. Uh, that's how you, uh, convert the cryptocurrency back into, you know, a, a currency that the, um, uh, that a charity can use, you know, uh, so if you're in the US, you know, how do you get that Bitcoin to US dollars, you know, you'll, you'll be working through an exchange uh, in order to convert that so you can deposit it into your bank account as well. Jason, let's make something explicit, because, you know, when we're recording Bitcoin, a single Bitcoin is around $55,000, roughly a single Ether is around $3,500. Let's make explicit that you don't have to spend $55,000 if you want to participate in, in the in in buying some bitcoin no no absolutely not so you know the uh it it goes up to eight decimal places and i I think that that's something that is uh you know um uh that's helpful to to be aware of so you know it is possible to buy like you know 0.0000 you know zero one worth of uh of bitcoin or ethereum so um you know, they uh, definitely do not have to purchase an entire Bitcoin or entire Ether in order to participate in the uh, in the ecosystem. Okay, and so you have uh, in the title of your book, you 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 use you say Bitcoin, but nonprofits could be uh, accepting any of the any of the coins that you mentioned. Uh, but does it become so when you when you stray from Bitcoin and Ether, which are the the, the two most popular? Uh, are you are you taking a a greater risk if you get into like Stellar and you mentioned Dogecoin and Binance? Does it become riskier for you, for you personally if you're doing your your experimental purchase and your credibility building purchases, or do, or for your nonprofit if you're accepting those other less popular like alt the altcoins? Hmm. It, it, it's similar to I, I would say, like you know, uh, in-kind donations or stock donations that charities uh, would ordinarily receive. And so, you know, I, I think that when considering cryptocurrency donations, like the, the vast majority of them are being transacted in uh, Bitcoin, followed by by Ether uh, in, in that order. However, when looking at altcoins, you know, what what's worth kind of thinking about is. You know, imagine a prospective uh, uh, donor who, you know, may have, you know, picked up a Dogecoin when it was, you know, uh, valued at, you know, 0.0001, you know, cents and held on to it. And, you know, now I think the last uh, I checked, it was like, you know, 26, 27 cents. And so, you know, what, with regards to uh, to risk, I, I, I think it's more um, helpful to assess, like, you know, what, what's the conversation that's being had, you know, is, is someone approaching your organization with, you know, um, uh, a donation that's like, Hey, I'd like to contribute, you know, a hundred dollars, hundred thousand dollars worth of, of, of Dogecoin, you know, it, generally speaking, I, I would hope that, you know, a charity that is approached with that kind of, um, uh, offer, you know, it's, you know, okay, let's, you know, let's find an exchange that, that will, you know, help us convert, you know, uh, that, that amount, uh, of Dogecoin, you know, into, um, uh, into U.S. dollars to, to allow us to to accept it, and and so um, you know I I think it really depends on the the audience, um, and so you know I, I think that's what drove some of the early adoption where you know as as Bitcoin you know started you know uh, rising in price you know more 
uh, offers of donations were, were, uh, were emerging. And, you know, I, I think that you will see, um, you know, similarly with the altcoins that are, are out there that, you know, for, definitely for uh, folks who have gotten in early um, on some of the altcoins and, you know, um, it, I think it still remains to be seen which ones will will take off. You know, we, we've already seen, you know, the emergency, you know, Bitcoin and Ether, but, you know, five years from now, you know, who who knows, you know, what may be up there. And so um, what I have observed is that, you know, many of the um, exchanges are, are responding uh, accordingly as well. So as as a, um, altcoins or other cryptocurrencies are taking off, you know, they get added to exchanges, which does make it easier and simpler for um, for organizations to uh to exchange and transact uh, in that, so um, you know there, there there have there have been instances actually of uh, folks uh, donating uh, uh, you know altcoins. I, I think Dogecoin you know definitely uh, has a lot of uh, fun stories uh, about how um, uh, how supporters have uh, uh, have donated their um, their their rapidly rising um, uh, uh, currency. Yeah, uh, because the you know like you're saying Dogecoin, someone could have bought it for. Uh, tens of thousands of a penny. And at one point, uh, I, I think it went up to like 60 cents or 65 cents in value. So if someone had spent like $100 or even a thousand, all the more of, of 200 or 500 or $1,000 buying millions of shares, and then the, the price went up to 60 cents, you know, they've got, they've got a lot of money in Dogecoin all of a sudden. And if they then converted it to dollars, Canadian or U.S., uh, they've got a lot of money potentially to give. And and as I said, the book points out a lot of folks who are very very generous with their with their cryptocurrency windfalls. Yeah, I uh, think yeah. Jason, correct me if, if I'm getting the numbers wrong, but it's something approximately where if, if you had you know invested a hundred dollars in ether at its launch you'd have over a million dollars today or two million dollars today like it's it it didn't take a lot at the beginning if you were really passionate about this project you put a little bit of money in um to suddenly have this astronomical wealth uh that would be almost impossible to generate in any other way in our society and so it's, it's really what you end up getting is fairly ordinary people, you know, that came from ordinary mm. means that, that now have this wealth that, you know, they're, they're not interested in buying gold plated sneakers, you know, they, they want to create change. Uh, and that's where the nonprofit sector can really help them do that. And let, let's stay with you and, and move to the organizational level. Now uh, let's talk some about getting, getting buy-in, uh, you the, in the book you make the point that you're not even sure the board should be approving this they shouldn't be involved it's, it's more like should we start accepting credit cards uh, you know uh, uh, so it's more um asking for support rather than permission but let's talk about you know ceo buy-in or maybe vice president of development buy-in how do, uh what are some of the reasons you might you as a crypto uh, advocate in your organization might might start putting forward for why your organization should get into this. So the the reason that I used when I was convincing my CEO back in 2014 was I said, look, you know, it's really uh, what we can do is accept it. We can sell it immediately. There's no fluctuation. There's no currency risk, anything like that. And fundamentally, that's no different than accepting a stock. Like we already accept stocks uh, and other securities. So if we do exactly the same treatment as we do with stocks, 
there's really no risk to the organization. And I think this day and age, um, there's no brand risk. There's there's no, no, the stigma that used to exist around Bitcoin is, is really not there anymore. We're seeing it adopted by uh, not only charities, but major organizations and companies, Microsoft, IBM, all kinds of different companies are, are heavily involved in cryptocurrencies. So I think that's that's the key one is saying, okay, we already do this with um, another volatile asset on the stock market. Here's another opportunity where we can essentially bring in uh, a whole new set of young donors. And I think that's probably my favorite argument for cryptocurrency is most of the donors and most of that community are between the ages of 24 and 40. Um, and so if you're really looking to bring on a whole new set of the younger generation of donors, this is a great way to do it. And you won't be cannibalizing any of your other activities. You'll have this whole new set of donors with no risk. Um, and for any organization that fundamentally says, hey, we want to be innovative, we want to be new, here's a great way that you can do that. That is not only exciting and innovative, but is also a revenue driver. And so it's pretty hard to say no to something where you say, okay, you know, we're going to, we're going to give this a try. It's going to cost us essentially nothing to set up. Uh, we can set it up over the course of the week. There's no risk and it might make us some money and bring in new donors. To me, that's an absolute hell yes. Okay. There was like four or five very good reasons what, you know, th- innovate, prepare for the future, expose yourself to new constituents. Uh, it's becoming mainstream. There's no stigma. Um, and and help you raise more money just in a in a different format. Um, yeah. Let's just make explicit. Anne, is it is it uh, your your recommendation that nonprofits would sell their their cryptocurrency right away as you would with stock, or what what is your recommendation for what to do with a cryptocurrency gift once you have received it? I wouldn't recommend it, but that's my risk tolerance. And so what's really most important is to look at like, what is the risk tolerance of your organization? You know, and I think um, every organization should really sit down and say, okay, how much cash do we have on the balance sheet? You know, how much money do we have every year to play with? And what percentage of that are we willing to put in a high risk investment? So maybe we decide that as an organization, we want 99% of our money that we raise to be there at the end of the year. And that's totally fine. Um, But take that 1% and hold it in a cryptocurrency and see what happens. Um, And say, look, this is a, a microscopic risk that we're going to take for the potential upside of making a lot of money. Um, or maybe your organization might be a little more risk friendly. You know, say, look, we're gonna we're gonna have safe, secure investments, or just keep our money in cash for seventy five percent of what we bring in. Ten percent we're gonna put in, you know, uh, index funds with the stock market, and the rest we're gonna put in cryptocurrency, something a little bit higher risk. Like I think, really, at the end of the day, it's not so much, you know, should you sell it or not. It's how much of your portfolio are you putting in high risk versus low risk assets? And I think the thing to keep in mind this day and age is with inflation where it is, putting your money in cash is not safe. You're losing money every year by holding that money in cash. So if you're trying to maintain the amount of money that you have by the end of the year, you need to be doing something with it. So is that something high risk, low risk? What percentage is it? Um, That's up to the organization to decide. But I would really recommend that that every organization actually take a critical look at what they're doing with their money um, and reserve at least a tiny portion of that to uh, to take a look at um, holding cryptocurrencies for the longer term. And the reason you say you're losing money if you're holding cash is because of inflation. 
Absolutely. Yeah. Jason, anything you want to add to the organizational policy? Yeah, I, I think from uh, just looking overall at, at trend lines, um, you know, to the point that um, that Anne made about risk, it's you know really aligning overall organizational strategy with what an organization is looking to achieve and how you know their their asset holdings may um, may reflect that and the, their risk tolerance. And I think when looking at trends, like it, it was as early as uh, I believe it was 2014 at the time that you know Canada was looking at digital currency programs. And you know, although that program at the time that it was called the Mint Chip program, you know, uh, didn't proceed. You know, uh, for much. I'm sorry, after Jason. That. Who 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 did you say was looking at? Oh, oh, sorry, the the, the Canadian uh, government um, or the, the Bank of Canada was looking at a, a program called the. Uh, the uh, the mint chip uh, program and that, that was really okay. a canadian digital currency that was being explored but now there's been a resurgence i think just in the past week you know the, the uh, g7 group of nations you know agreed upon you know a, a set of standards to uh, examine you know digital currency so i think when looking at you know overall trends you know digital currencies and, and you know cryptocurrency are not an if but it's a when and you know for organizations that are preparing for the future strategically it's it's really you know do are, are by by participating in the ecosystems now you're, you're essentially future proofing your organization for that future which is going to come of you know as governments are seriously looking at digital currencies that the same principles that govern you know how do you treat you know cryptocurrencies that this is all going in the digital direction and you know that much is evident and so um it, it's more of a timing uh, consideration now it's like you know would you like to do it now or later <laughs> it's coming it, right it's 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 not it's not if but when I think that, that's a terrific place to wrap up. You know, there's there's a lot more in the book. Uh, there are checklists for how you set this up at your organization. But I, I wanted to focus on the basics, uh, a person venturing into this, because with the statistics that, that I mentioned, so there's still 87% of Americans are, are not involved in crypto and still 70% of Canadians are not involved in crypto. So I want to I want to overcome that and then move to the organization level. And as I said, the book is a very good primer. Lots of easy to understand analogies. The book is Bitcoin and the Future of Fundraising: A Beginner's Guide to Cryptocurrency Donations. The co-authors are Ann Connolly at Ann underscore Connolly and Jason Shim at Jason Shim. And Jason, thank you very very much. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thanks, Tony. Pleasure. Thank you for for sharing and and doing it in a simple way. Next week, Mission Uncomfortable, that's a working title, with Stu Swineford. That's not a working name. He'll, He'll stick. If you missed any part of this week's show, I beseech you, find it at TonyMartinetti.com. We're sponsored by Turn 2 Communications, PR and content for nonprofits. Your story is their mission. Turn-2.co. Our creative producer is Claire Meyerhoff. The show's social media is by Susan Chavez. Mark Silverman is our web guy. And this music is by Scott Stein. Thank you for that affirmation, Scotty. Be with me next week for Nonprofit Radio. Big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. Go out and be great. <laughs>